Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. Today, we're going to finalize the third in a three-part series with the uh, the pre-distribution initiative. This is the third podcast that follows on from two others that really looked at the institutionalization of capital and the consolidation of capital flows and what that means to investments. The second one looked more specifically at the systemic risks and the fallout from different investment structures that come alongside the current you know, way that we do finance and the and the potential blowback that comes from those risks. The third podcast, which is the one we're doing today, is really going to be looking at new investment structures, regenerative investment structures that can help improve the way that institutional asset allocators uh, look at their asset allocation. So Delilah, I'll kick off with you first. We've got a new guest today. We've had Denise Hearn previously and Raphael, I think it's Chap, in the last two. We've got a new guest today. Can you introduce them? Sure. Thanks so much, Alex. It's wonderful to be back with you. And I'm really pleased to introduce Taylor Sikhan, who is one of our advisory committee members, our, um, the equivalent of a board of directors for a, uh, a fiscally sponsored nonprofit in the United States. And we're really honored to have Taylor with us. I actually met Taylor in a past life when I was working with a holding company that we were uh, raising capital for. And Taylor was at a Canadian pension fund, and we went to pitch this investment opportunity to Taylor and his team. And Taylor gave us a list of reasons why this investment would be challenging for them. And it was so informative uh, for me in terms of thinking through what are some of the barriers to getting more regenerative investment structures through to the portfolios of institutional investors. And even though uh, the team and I were a little disappointed that we weren't going to be able to partner with Taylor and his team, the lessons that I took away from that converse, the conversations, I think it was a, maybe one or two conversations, were just really invaluable. And I didn't really expect to run into Taylor in my next life or uh, d- in doing my nonprofit, but Taylor ended up leaving that pension fund and now is actually working with a firm that's working on regenerative investment structure. So I'm really excited that he's here today to talk to you about that. And I think that if anybody's looking for some inspiration to go do something different, Taylor's a great teacher and I will have a lot of uh, great knowledge to share. So Taylor, maybe if you can give the audience a bit of your background and how you got to, to where you are and your work with the Predistribution Initiative. Sure, great. And thanks, Delilah, for the kind introduction. Uh, and I'm equally grateful we've been able to stay friends through all of this and work together because uh, we learned a lot from you as well. So, you know, in my day job, my focus is I'm a director at Social Capital Partners. We are an impact investing firm based in Toronto, Canada. Our primary focus these days is around employee ownership. So we partner with institutional investors to provide financing that enables companies to transition to employee ownership instead of transitioning to private equity. As Delilah mentioned, I was previously a private equity investor with BCI, uh, and I'm on the advisory board of the Pre-Distribution, Predistribution Initiative, which is something I'm really happy to be involved with. I think the work that we collectively and really Delilah is leading is important to help 
the institutional investor world transition to investment structures that will, you know, build a you know better, more inclusive, resilient economy long term. And so really, you know, happy to be here with all of you and, and, and talk about some of these topics. I've got to go back to Delilah's comment about why you rejected her ultimately and, and her proposal. I'm really keen to sort of get a feel for what is the challenge for a lot of these sort of new structures that don't fit within, you know, existing pension schemes. Sure. And, and, you know, what I can do is give you a little bit of, of a story afterwards about one of the investment opportunities we worked on that tried to overcome some of these barriers. But I'd say really the challenge when you work in the impact investing world or you're, when you're working in sort of a more regenerative investment space and trying to unlock institutional capital, there's sort of three key barriers we found that you'd have to overcome. The first is, you know, while you're trying to build a track record before you have a fund, it's, you know, being able to find and build relationships with institutional investors that can invest on a direct basis, because that's really how you build a track record that's relevant to institutional investors, forms the basis for any fund that could be raised down the road. To do that, though, given the size of most institutional investors and pension funds, you really need to work with companies of scale where the financing needs are you know, going to meet their direct investment parameters. And that generally, if we're talking north of $100 million investments uh, in, in most cases, and those can be hard to find in, in new investment spaces. And then the last thing uh, I would say is that, and this is a really important one, gained a much deeper appreciation for since leaving BCI is making sure that what you're working on fits into an existing asset class for a pension fund. And, and the reason for that is they obviously need to understand that asset class to, to make a direct investment. But, you know, I'd say more importantly, they need to have a benchmark that this can fit against. So that's what drives a lot of the incentives and investment behaviors of pension funds. So making sure there's a the right and appropriate benchmark is, is a key one. And so at least in terms of the existing framework for institutional investors as they operate today, making sure you can achieve those three things when you're at an early stage trying to prove a new investment structure is really important. I'm curious, how do you think, and maybe this is a question for you, Delilah, around those three barriers that, that Taylor just mentioned, and then this definition of impact, because I think impact has such a broad meaning. And so that's partly this challenge. And in some cases, it may be this dirty you know, black cloud that sits over the top of some of these investments that people get scared as to what does that do for my potential return outlooks, and then how do they sit, sit into a particular existing asset bucket? Um, it's something that people want um, in terms of impact, but at the same time, how do they sort of factor that into the broader portfolio? Yeah, I can start and interested in Taylor's thoughts as well. But I think that in the very niche investment space for impact investing, investment structures is starting to play a bigger and bigger role in thinking about how can this investment be most impactful. And so impact investing used to be about really, are the products and services that this investment opportunity is generating, are they good for society? Are they good for the environment? But more and more people are thinking about how is the investment structure actually supporting this enterprise in being impactful in a positive way. That's not really happening in the ESG space yet. ESG is still really about managing risk and sometimes increasingly thinking about opportunity, as we mentioned in the first podcast, um, but it's historically been about managing risk at the portfolio company level when it comes to portfolio company operations. And it doesn't really have to do with capital structure or investment structure, or is this asset class creating risk and unintended negative consequences uh, for the real economy and financial markets. 
And so I agree that that more needs to be done in this space. And that's actually one of the main goals of the pre-distribution initiative is to work with investors to help them understand that just looking at the portfolio company operations is a single part of a larger equation when it comes to a an impactful economy or de-risking financial markets in the economy. Because large institutional investors, universal owners of the market, like where Taylor used to work, they're exposed to every asset class, every geography, every industry, and they're exposed to systematic risk that comes from the risk of these investment strategies and these asset classes and investment structures. If you have unprecedented non-financial corporate debt with leverage ratios that are also historically high and weak underwriting standards. That's not good for financial markets. It's not good for workers in the portfolio companies of over-levered companies. It's not good for communities who depend on those portfolio companies. It's not good for anybody. But nobody's really talking about that. Or if you have fund managers where the executive compensation is extremely high and wealth is really pooling to a few individual intermediaries in the economy, then that's not good in terms of wealth inequality and and creates all kinds of issues with secular stagnation and reduced economic growth, instability. That's not good for universal owners in their portfolios. So we need to evolve our thinking when it comes to what is impact, what is ESG, and what is the risk that needs to be managed. I'll switch to you, Taylor. And I guess the other question to to follow up there is that those three barriers that you mentioned are really going to prohibit a lot of investments to to hit impact because traditionally impact is on the lower end and it's very hard for them to fit in the traditional institutional asset allocation structure. Yeah. So look, that's um, for sure the case. And for as long as institutional investors keep to traditional frameworks for investing that, you know, require that scale. Uh, and these are choices, I would say, like, the re- you know, that require that scale, that require clear-cut asset classes. Th- that's going to make it tough for impact investing to really make its way into the institutional investment world. I'd say that part of that is on us as impact investors. And look, like some impact investments are better suited to not work with institutional investors to play in different segments of the market where they can have a more dramatic impact because you'll always be constrained slightly from an impact perspective if you're if you're going to need to meet the return the commercial return obligations that most pension funds stick to pension funds these days are not looking to make any concessionary returns yet uh, and so i think um, there may be some impact investments that will stay in segments of the market that are not institutionally backed. But for those that are, part of it is a question of ambition and really starting to try to scale investment models that we have. The other part of it, though, is also on institutional investors to start to think more creatively, start to question some of the underlying assumptions and I'd say norms that are in the market right now around is, uh, you know, can we make smaller investments? Can we find ways to support other segments of the market, smaller funds? These are choices. They're hard choices, but they're certainly possible. And so there's different ways that as us as institution, as impact investors, sorry, can try to solve these problems. And then institutional investors can try to solve these problems too. It's interesting also when I think about the institutional investors and, and particularly in the first podcast, we talked about you know the increasing amount of capital flow that's moving to a smaller and smaller group, whether it's both the asset owners and the, the asset managers their biggest challenge is they need constantly scale. You know, these smaller deals just don't work out. So you do have this huge challenge where we've got a structure from an investment structure point of view where just so much money is being aggregated that it does get very difficult. And so you need to look to maybe other sorts of endowments, other wealth management groups, maybe high net wealth. You know, how do you then sort of try and target these sort of deals to the right people? 
I would actually push back a little bit on the idea that that's our only choice is as pension funds scale to make larger investments and that we are, that's just a fact that we're constrained. I think, I think this is a choice, honestly. We did a lot of research at my former employer around where are you actually generating alpha? Where are there premium returns? And we, you know, generally speaking, small cap, mid cap markets, you're getting better returns than you are in the large cap markets where it's super competitive. And obviously you, you know, that's more resource intensive. You need, it's, it's harder to make a lot of small investments. It's hard to move the, move the needle. So I think this is a balance, right? There are really good reasons to make large concentrated bets, especially in certain asset classes like private equity, where you can back larger companies that in theory you can hold long term. But I don't think that's the only part of your portfolio. That's exclusively what your portfolio should look like. You can also start to factor in some of these smaller mid-cap investments and and start to shift into other segments of the market because that's really where you can generate some better returns, I would say. But uh, look, for groups like us uh, that aren't able to get straight to the institutional investment world or the pension fund world, working your way up the spectrum, continuing with each fund, to target larger companies to, you know, that's sort of the traditional framework to get to, to get to pension funds. And there are lots of investors along the way, whether they're family offices or even potentially starting at high net worths that can help you on that journey. It just takes a lot of time. I've got to now throw the question back to Delilah because an interesting piece comes to mind, right? You've mentioned Taylor around small caps and, and what value you can create and the alpha opportunity. And there's plenty. I think that's well, well documented through academia. But here's the, here's the potential challenge, which is a lot of that investment that goes into these small caps is all already listed. You know, the money's gone in. You're just, it's financial transaction between one share owner to another. You're not actually getting new money into it. So how do you think about the, the impact, which is new capital that goes in versus buying existing or new sh- existing shares that are currently listed? Yeah, we explore these dynamics in our paper, ESG 2.0, Measuring and Managing Investor Risks Beyond the Enterprise Level. And, you know, there is a lot of capital chasing the same deals and the same deals changing hands between investors. And uh, that's obviously not good for investors' portfolios and um, isn't great for the real economy either because it means that not there's a small segment of the market that's actually getting access to the capital. And I don't remember if we actually went over this on the previous podcast, but either way, it's useful to recap that corporate financing has really evolved since the global financial crisis, where capital markets now provide nearly 80% of the financing to corporates, uh, as opposed to banks, which much are a much smaller segment of the market than they used to be. And so if capital markets are really chasing the larger deals or even in the you know smid cap space exchanging the same companies, then that's a problem and that means that there are a lot of small medium-sized enterprises that aren't getting access to capital. And one of the things that we're looking at is how we can think about new investment structures that provide access to more companies. So for instance, venture capital is really just suited for a, a small segment of the market that is looking to scale rapidly. However, there are there, there's emerging interest in revenue-based financing and equity redemptions. So revenue-based financing is where the investor would, it's not exactly um, equity and it's not exactly debt. So they there's no term on a, on a loan, but the investor basically Uh, lends money to the company and the company can pay it back as a portion of revenue over time. There can be a pre-agreed targeted rate of return or in equity redemptions, the investor invests for equity in the company and then the company buys it back as a percentage of profits over time with a similar arrangement, a targeted rate of return. 
and all different kinds of different additional structure uh, elements can be structured in, including governance rights and so forth. And so these are different types of financing, which don't fit into the quote unquote buckets that Taylor was alluding to earlier, where institutional investors have their private equity, they have their venture capital. This doesn't fit into either. It's not mezzanine debt. So, you know, mezzanine debt is I remember I was also involved in the mezzanine debt fund around 2015, and that was a hard thing to pitch to because there was no bucket for it. But institutional investors evolved, and now they're starting to have an interest in mezzanine debt, and they see that it can be very attractive in this low interest rate environment in um, producing yield. And similarly, revenue-based financing and equity redemptions can produce returns that are somewhere in the high single digits, low double digits. And so there could be an opportunity for institutional investors to rethink their barbell approach to asset allocation. And instead of allocating so much at the low end and so much at the high end or overcompensating for poor performance at the low end of the risk return spectrum with super high risk investments in this low interest rate environment, why not allocate more to the middle of the risk return spectrum and uh, and do some of this revenue-based financing, equity redemptions? Taylor will tell you about employee ownership. There's also a lot of interest in the impact investing space around community ownership. And all of these are new opportunities that could really be scaled and help institutional investors meet their, say, 7% targeted rate of return across asset classes. But there really needs to be a shift in thinking around what the buckets are and how the the barbell approach is adapted. Do you think, Delilah, that as we see some funds, particularly in Australia, they're moving away from the traditional bucketing approach and the SAA that, that sits alongside that to now this total portfolio approach where they're really looking for specific risk factors. They're pretty agnostic, ultimately, what they're investing in. It's looking for real individual risk uh, and, and return outcomes. You know, How would that potentially help maybe opening up the doors for some of these types of investments? Yeah, I think that uh, having that more open approach seems like a step in the right direction. I haven't spent too much time with Australian pension funds, so it'd be interesting to talk about that more. And one of the things that we're really focused on doing at the pre-distribution initiative is working with institutional investors to say, you know, what if you adjust this or adjust that, or maybe an institutional investor is already making adjustments as you just suggested. And so um, really thinking through how can we make space in portfolios for these kinds of opportunities? And that does sound like a good step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Taylor, maybe do you have any experience in, in the total portfolio approach and how maybe some of these new structures can, can work? Not entirely. I'd say, you know, when I worked in the space, we had a pretty traditional approach and and there are some merits to it, you know, to having really defined asset classes, clear benchmarks, you know, that drives accountability that, you know, keeps investment teams focused. There's a whole, there's a whole bunch of, of benefits there, but obviously things fall through the cracks. One of the interesting approaches you've started to see a bit more of are these CEO investment strategy sort of groups. So they're, they're, the CEO's office and uh, some pension funds will have a small allocation to be able to make investments that in a lot of cases fall between asset classes. And I, I think if you think about what benefit that serves, it can be a great way to prove out and get a first mover's advantage in some of these asset classes that Delilah is speaking about. But again, fall between asset classes that are good for pensioners at the end of the day, but that don't, you know, is easily fit a bucket. So I think whether it's the, you know, total portfolio return focus and shifting towards that, or whether it's looking for strategies or approaches that can cover some of these gaps or these cracks between asset classes like 
a CEO investment uh, allocation. Assuming you can manage the governance on that correctly, it can be a really good and creative way to try to build, position the pension fund to be successful long term with new investment strategies. It's really interesting. I haven't heard much about that um, previously, but definitely something um, worth looking at. I'd like to also touch on one of the other points that Delilah made, Taylor, which is around these employees and working alongside asset owners. And, and what does that look like? Yeah, great. So I can you know tell you a little bit about what we do, but maybe to you know start with some context. When we started looking at our focus at, at SCP is really around finding ways to use large pools of capital to put a, you know, to start to reverse wealth inequality and think, you know, what can we do? What investment strategies could we create to help institutional investors play a role in rebuilding the pathway to wealth? And as we started looking at that and thinking through in, you know, different opportunities, the one that we got really excited about was employee ownership and uh, a specific form of employee ownership that only really exists in the U.S. called the ESOP. The easiest way to think about what we do is, you know, we're effectively doing leverage buyouts, but instead of a private equity firm acquiring the equity, we help a trust that's set up on behalf of all employees acquire the equity in a business. It's so it's at oh, at a high level a transaction model that institutional investors already understand, but it's one that is a, obviously a different approach where we provide debt financing as opposed to equity to make it happen. So maybe to put it into some concrete terms, in December we closed our first transaction partnering with the Healthcare of Ontario pension plan, and we helped Taylor Guitars, the leading manufacturer of acoustic guitars in the U.S., become 100% employee owned. Uh, so this is a company that does over 120 million in revenue, has over 1,200 employees, and all 1,200 employees as a part of this transaction, including their 800 employees in Mexico, now are owners of the business and collectively own 100% of the business. So with Hoop, we provided debt financing, and that's you know really been a key part of what made this transaction possible. So for us, you know, we're hopeful that this can be an example that other institutional investors can point to, to make similar types of investments going forward, uh, or that can get them excited around the concept of employee ownership. This is one model for employee ownership uh, that we think works really well. There are other models for employee ownership too. But um, uh, what we, one of the things that Hoop and us really like about how this works is, you know, pension funds are usually very focused on alignment and making sure that their management teams, their partners, their companies are aligned with the long-term success of the business. And in this case, when you've got employees that are owners of the business, alignment is real and it's it's embedded in the company from top to bottom. So it's you know a great way to make a long-term investment with alignment throughout the company. Uh, again, that meets the return objectives of a pension fund. So that so we're really excited about this. So that's sort of a, at a high level what what we did with Taylor Guitars and what what we think it could signal to pension funds going forward as they think about not just, you know, new asset classes to invest in, but how they can make direct investments and how they can incorporate employees in the success of their businesses long term. I've got to ask the question around debt financing. It's always seen as potentially problematic. And even in some of the previous uh, podcasts, we sort of talked about the over uh, indebtedness of many businesses. How do you then address that that concern that, that comes alongside uh, funding these companies w- with debt and, and also for the company employees to understand that relationship? Yeah, so we are um, really, in this case, a senior lender. So I'd say if you look at the little leverage we provided to the company, it's, it's pretty reasonable. So that's one element that that manages that. I'd say more importantly, though, not all debt is created equal. And in this case, the way the debt has been structured, the flexibility we provided on repayment, that's really built for to ensure that the company can be successful long term is what is what makes this different, right? So there's a lot of flexibility around how interest is paid and when, how amortization is paid and when. It's all done on purely commercial terms. But because pension funds 
can really invest for the long term. It allows them to be a more flexible lender that's more thoughtful about ensuring the long-term success of the business. And the big question ultimately comes back to benchmarking and how mm-hmm. do they benchmark this particular debt versus you know, the rest that's, that's out there? Yeah, so this this is a pretty traditional private credit investment with the exception that the outcome that this produces for employees. So if you're looking at it from the outside, uh, it, you know, it really looks like your you know, typical private, private credit investment. So it'll be a benchmark against a private debt benchmark in this case, more sort of senior senior debt type benchmark. So that that part, we are lucky in, in the way that these deals are structured, that that is a solvable problem uh, because it fits into a real a traditional asset class. It's really a fascinating um, observation that, that you, some, something like this can be done. Um, I think it's it's you hear about it, but I guess it's a matter of how can a pension fund do it? And a lot of pension funds have been doing social investments, particularly in Australia, but typically around social housing, disability support housing, and so forth. That's where they've, they've done it. I've, I haven't seen anything like this um, to date. Well, and, and this is, as far as we know, the first time ever a pension fund has directly financed employee ownership conversion. And their quality of the company, of Taylor Guitars, has made this is really, first and foremost, what's made this possible. I'd say the sophistication of Hoop is also a key element. You know, they're one of, again, one of the more sophisticated pension funds globally in terms of their direct investment capabilities. And so they're, you know, they're looking for opportunities like this. But I'd also say this is not like some other forms of employee ownership. You know, government governance, the business from the outside will look very traditional, right? There's a, you know, independent board of directors, there's a, you know, a management team that's empowered as in any other management team, any other traditional management team would be and incentivized accordingly too. And so uh, it's a good model in that of all the forms of employee ownership that exist out there, this is the probably the easiest one for a pension fund to get comfortable with given the governance structure. So look, we're hopeful that this will be more pension funds will follow in, in, in Hoop's footsteps here uh, and that, you know, us as a firm might be able to make that possible at a certain point too, but we're, we're really excited about it, obviously, and, and hope that this can help raise the awareness of all sorts of institutional investors around how employee ownership can fit into a pension fund's portfolio long-term. Delilah, it's, it's also very interesting because this is a real ground-up style business and it's sort of taking uh, away from the fin- financialization of traditional portfolio management and what modern portfolio theory is always telling people just to go and buy and diversify diversify and diversify away any of the idiosyncratic risk. Here, you're now making some clear investments in, in people, defining impact and also returns. How do you then go about educating uh, the various pension funds, endowments and institutional asset allocators to actually understand what this opportunity looks like um, and how it would fit within their their current structures? So we're doing this in a few ways. Number one is we're educating institutional investors on what regenerative investment structures can look like and what opportunities do exist. And a lot of those opportunities are very niche and smaller. And so uh, we recognize that it can be difficult for these institutions to actually access these opportunities. And we're working to create spaces where those who are structuring these opportunities can come together with asset owners and allocators and work to to scale these opportunities into real asset classes, investable asset classes. That needs to be done with integrity, integrity to preserve the positive impact, because as you mentioned, there's a tendency in capital markets for concepts to just become financialized. And so we really want to stay away from some unintended negative consequences that might come from certain structures you asked Taylor about debt used in his strategy. 
Um, certainly, if deals are not structured thoughtfully and carefully, then that could become an issue in other circumstances. So we're doing that through workshops. We're doing that through webinars. The other thing that we need to do with investors, you mentioned modern portfolio theory, is help investors self-reflect on what's going on internally in their own practices that are inhibiting them from accessing some of these opportunities. So we have an asset owner and allocator capacity building and research project, and that's designed to not only educate investors about the opportunities as I as I investable opportunities as I just mentioned and figure out how to scale those with integrity, but also self-reflect and look at, okay, we were universal owners of the market, as I previously mentioned, and we're exposed to systematic risk. So we need to start looking at the risks of investment structures, not just the idiosyncratic risks that happen at the portfolio company level. It's not just about what is this portfolio company doing that can create risk to its own financials. That's not really the full story when it comes to risk measurement and management for institutional investors. There's also investment structures, there's systematic risk related to those those structures, to wealth inequality, to climate change, to biodiversity management. And so investors need to come up with, and we don't have all of the right answers formulated, but we need to start as an industry creating spaces like this that you're curating right now and, and this podcast and at conferences and in publications to talk about how do we measure and manage systematic risk. And investors just don't have the tools to do that right now. One of our advisors on the Asset Owner and Allocator Project, John McComnick, co-authored a book with Jim Hawley called Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters, that I highly recommend folks check out. It's more focused on corporate governance interventions with portfolio companies and the systematic risk that portfolio companies can cause. So for instance, by not paying a living wage or um, by not offering quality benefits or by engaging in activities that decrease antimicrobial resistance. So John and Jim are very focused on corporate governance interventions with portfolio companies to address these kinds of systemic or systematic issues. But we're leveraging the work that they've done and building upon it to say, okay, let's also look at market structure, let's look at investment structures, and let's figure out how to measure and manage these these issues through investment practices in addition to corporate governance. There's there's actually an interesting issue with risk and you mentioned systematic risk many times there and as part of that conversation that's an interesting one because that's just a empirical uh, way of looking at risk and you compare your risk to to a market and so forth i think there's another broader problem which is the concept of risk in quotations what does that actually mean particularly as you start to look at a lot of these portfolio companies and the way that they grow the risks in them it's very lumpy And unfortunately, the way a lot of allocators look at their portfolio is through this nice, smooth, to some degree, uh, structure that sits within this portfolio theory, modern portfolio theory, normal distributions and so forth. But the types of businesses that you're looking to invest in, these new types of um, ownership models and so forth, it's hard for them to fit within that, that financial style of model of risk. So... That's something that I think is also going to have to change in people's mindset about what does actually risk mean. Uh, It's become, I think, too statistically based. And I don't think the understanding of what risk actually means is is still very much misunderstood. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, risk is often uh, just interpreted as volatility. John and Jim in their book highlight that uh, somewhere between um, 75 to 94% of an investor's returns are influenced by systematic factors as opposed to idiosyncratic factors. So I think uh, that's important to acknowledge. 
and when when we're thinking about what to focus on in risk management. And they also highlight how the real economy has become very divorced from the financial markets. And so volatility really doesn't describe what's going on in the real economy that can shake up financial markets. And uh, and so I absolutely agree. We need to rethink what risk is. We also need to rethink who's putting what at risk in the development of an investment. And so we often think about financial capital being put at risk, but we don't think about the workers who are putting their own capital, human capital at risk and, and how they're also creating value. And we don't think about natural capital. Increasingly, we are in terms of, are we going to price uh, carbon, for instance? But uh, we don't really think about the environment being put at risk and creating value and, and what that costs. And so related to the benchmarking conversation, we need to rethink benchmarks for all the reasons that we already discussed, but we also need to think about are historical financial benchmarks inflated because we were not adequately accounting for human and natural capital. We were only thinking about financial capital. I'll switch back to you, Taylor, and I want to continue on the on the topic of risk and particularly systematic risk. It's quite interesting because you can have particularly a business that has a very high systematic risk. It it tracks the market, a high beta effectively, but ultimately can still blow up and go to zero. Uh, So you've got this idea that things are going well, it, it, it tracks it. So again, risk is very difficult. How do you then communicate to a portfolio in your previous life? How do you speak to portfolio managers around how to look for different types of investments like what you've just done with Taylor Guitars uh, and and take it take them through the process to understand what this business offer you know offers to the portfolio from a risk and return perspective. Yeah, so especially as well, most pension funds are talking about trying to invest long term and you know talking about ten plus hold year periods things along those lines. And what's key there is understanding really it's flip the question on a risk. I would say how resilient of a business is this, right? How if you're looking at a crisis, how you know how likely is it that this company will come on the other side? Part of that is a capital structure question. So how you finance the business and can it manage through a crisis accordingly? Part of that is also just how you have the, the nature of the business and how you have incentivized and supported the management team. So you know, one of the things we found with employee ownership that's really interesting is they've been studied during multiple crises, so during the financial crisis as well during, during COVID. And what, what they found through the academic research on it was they default rest less, they are more like more less, sorry, less likely to lay people off. So you find with these kinds of companies that they are much more resilient. And that is not because they are all the best quality, highest resilient businesses. It's because of how the the company culture that's been created, the investments they've made over the long run. And so as I think of what you know any institutional investor should be thinking as they're looking at it at, at their companies, it's one thing to think on a five year period, you know, how do I maximize my return? How do I, you know, optimize the capital structure? What are the what are reasonable investments, you know, capital expenditures to make? What are ones that are not worth it because I'm going to sell in five years? When you do think long term, when you do think that this is a company I plan on holding, you know, forever, and management is aligned to think that way too, it creates a different sense of resilience that is really key to managing risk more broadly. So that's that's I think probably where I would go to first is thinking about how do you build true resilience in a company. It sounds like you're almost discussing, almost like thinking about it from an outcome returns perspective with this margin of safety in, that's built into the business. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's a time horizon thing, right? Um, you know, it's 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 really again how you would think about 
you know, what, uh, you know, what margin of safety say you build as the business or what uh, it, it really, if you're thinking on a five-year basis versus if you're thinking on a 10, 15, 20, 20 year basis, it really changes things. And that's, what I think one of the exciting things about pension funds going direct more is that they're, they in theory are more likely to be able to hold, hold companies long-term and make decisions that are really in the long-term uh, interest of the company, employee owner, employee owned firms that are really a perpetual form of ownership, try to do that too, but they're not the only way you can do that. And so it's, um, it's just a different, it's a different lens to look at a company through. And also I think it's a different lens of, of looking at risk as well and, and what mm-hmm. under underlying risk looks like. Well, I think that's a perfect place to to wrap up the conversation. Uh, I think it's been an incredible journey. We've gone through three different iterations of, of ways of looking at um, different uh, investment structures, particularly given the current framework of asset management, asset owners. So I thank you very much, both Taylor and Delilah, for your time. Thanks so much, Alex. It was fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.